0: Uh, Genesis means beginning, and so our study is here a study of beginnings. We have the beginning of this world. We have the beginning of humanity, wickedness, righteousness, good and evil, religion, spirituality, uh, culture, marriage, family. We read about the origin or the beginning of all these things here in the book of Genesis. It also gets off to a rough start. It is a rough start. Uh, we see the, the spread of evil and the spread of darkness significantly in the book of Genesis. In fact, where we are now in Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 11. And we've said this before, uh, buckle up because it is a dark. It is a dark picture uh, where we see the spread of sin. When you read the book of Genesis, you you, you see the spread of two things. One is from man and and one is from God. Okay, you see the spread of uh, faithlessness and the spread of faithfulness. Okay, you see something coming from man, faithlessness, but then you see something from God, faithfulness. And Moses, as he's writing, especially these first 11 chapters, he's giving careful attention to the spread of sin. Showing us how sin, where it started in the garden, is like a snowball that's coming down a mountain and and turns into an avalanche. And just when you can't think it gets any worse, it continues to get worse and worse. Now, that said, though, Moses is also drawing attention to the fact that even while sin is spreading in this world, God's grace is also spreading. So we learn in Genesis something very important about the character of God. We learn about how God responds to a sinful people. And the way that God responds to sinful people is exactly the way that we would hope God would respond to a sinful people. So today's text that we're looking at is is no exception. Okay, Spread of sin, spread of grace. And what we have here is the beginning of civilized life. 417 through 532, we're reading about the beginning of civilized life. This moves beyond the family now, and now it's going to be city. It's going to be culture. It's going to be civilization of man with with all its potential for good and evil. More specifically, we have in today's text, a tale of two cities. A tale of two cities. When I say the word city, I I don't just mean city in the way we understand it. I mean society. I mean culture. I mean civilization. And here you have the germ. You have the, the seed, okay, of what is going to become two large cities. Francis Schaeffer looked at this text and said, You can see two humanities. Or Augustine in his work, City of God, looks at this text and says, You can see the two cities. So the history of the entire world is the history of two peoples. Okay, one going in one direction, the other going in the other direction. Specifically, Augustine said two cities formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. So starting right here and even back beginning in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where you remember God said that there was going to be two cities, there was going to be two civilizations within humanity. He talked about your offspring talking to the devil and her offspring. And I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. There are going to be two humanities. There are going to be two peoples within mankind. And there's going to be war between them. There's going to be strife between them. There's going to be struggle between them. There will be what all of us see. There will be one people. Right. Mankind, human kind. But what this says is that within that one people, within mankind, you also have two distinct cities. And we would use these words to describe them, the godly and the godless. And, And here we see the beginning. But today we look around and see the same. That while we are all mankind we are all human beings there are still two humanities today in regards to god there is the godly there is the godless two cities of god so let's pray and we'll look at these two cities father in heaven thank you for the grace that you've given us the gift that you've given us that we could even be here today that we could open up Your Word together and read communication from You, God, to us. For those of us who have accepted this and believed this, I pray that we would remember how precious these words are and learn from You today. For those who might be here today that do not accept this as Your Word, I pray, God, that You would compel them. I pray that You would convince them, even now in their heart, that You would create an openness that has not been there. I pray that your word, as it's preached this morning, as it has been for thousands of years, I pray that your word would do its work like no other words can, and it would speak deeper to these people, and it would go farther in these people. It would reach souls today. We pray you do this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So please open up your Bible. As Pastor Curtis read, we're going to we're going to be today in Genesis, chapter four, verse 17, all the way through chapter five, verse 32. And look at these two cities that are going to be established here. And first, in four seventeen through 24, we have the descendants of Cain or the godless civilization. And that will be contrasted. In chapter 4, verse 25 through 532, with the descendants of Seth and a a godly civilization. But before we get into this depiction here of the godless civilization, two two things to get out of the way. Number one, when it comes to genealogies, I know you love studying genealogies. And a couple things to let you know in regards. First of all, the genealogies that we read here, or anywhere in your Bible for that matter, are not always necessarily complete genealogies. In other words, the purpose of genealogies is not always to describe every branch on the family tree. And this would be an example of a genealogy that is meant to highlight certain branches on the family tree. And one of the reasons we know this, is that in the Hebrew, when the word fathered is used, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and and then so-and-so fathered so-and-so, it can also mean fathered an ancestor of. And the reason that's important is when we, when we read these, we, we want to try, or, or some people do, to come up with a specific number of years. But the total period of time that's covered here is indeterminable based on just what we have here. So just keep that in mind. These genealogies are not necessarily complete. They are meant to highlight certain branches of the family tree as the author God, through the author, means to give us characteristics of the godly city and the godless city. The second thing that I want to point out before we get rolling is to answer an age-old question. Some actually asked it this week, just in preparation, hoping that I would build a whole sermon around the question, where did Cain get his wife? So let's just get that over with. We don't have to look very far to get the answer. Chapter 5, verse 4: Buckle up. Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. So get ready for a collective view. (laughs) Cain married his sister. There you go. Okay, we can we move on now. We're not going to build the sermon on that, but Cain, just get it out. It's true, okay? Cain married his sister. Now, let me just say a couple things to try to ease the pain there. Right? A little slice of Georgia right here in the Old Testament. <laughs> a couple things to keep in mind. Number one is that the, the, the gene pool. Okay, which is this is much further upstream. Okay, and the gene pool was was not tainted and was much cleaner than the gene pool that we have today. So that what we would call today incest, close interbreeding, which is going to lead to genetic disorder, that was not going to happen at this time. Now, by the time Moses is receiving the law from God, Leviticus 18, verse one, God says this is not Uh, permissible, that this is not okay. They were no longer dealing with a clean gene pool. It was not going to work anymore. And so God outlawed that among his people. So if you consider this, the, the difference would be like if you were to go up to the source of the Sacramento River, Okay, Sacramento River starts at Lake Shasta actually starts before Lake Shasta in a creek that is even higher than Lake Shasta. It is one thing to go and to drink drink from the from the, the, the very beginning of that creek that is higher than Mount Shasta. That is totally different than going down and scooping up the water at Discovery Park. OK, so there's the image for you. That's what we're talking about here as well. Here's a quote. This might be helpful. One writer has estimated that if during the several hundred years that Adam lived, only half of children that would normally be born grew up, and they probably all grew up, and if only half of those who grew up got married, and probably all got married, and if only half who got married had children, and probably all had children, that even at the half, half, half rate, Adam would have lived to see more than one million of his own descendants. There's multiplications, how it works. So not only did Cain have a wife, he had a choice that was as great as many have today. So there you go. I hope that's helpful. Some of you are rightfully inconsolable when it comes to that truth. But this is what the scriptures teach. Genesis 4, 1 through 16, which we looked at last week, right? Gives the sad, sad account of the first big brother murdering the first little brother. One of the saddest things that you will read in your Bible. Uh, and and then not not only that, as if that wasn't bad enough, but then the the big brother, the murderous big brother uh, refusing to take responsibility, um, refusing to admit his sin, refusing to confess his sin, refusing to accept the consequences from God for his sin. And so we saw that God drove him out even farther than he had driven Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's sin was great and God drove them out, you remember, of the perfect, peaceful Garden of Eden. Cain's sin is even greater. He not only gives in to sin the way his father Adam did, he actually exults in his sin. He gives into his sin. He exalts in his sin. He rebels against God. And as a consequence, God drives him out even farther, which means that now that Abel has been murdered, we have three people that we're dealing with at the very beginning of our story. Right. And this is Adam. This is Eve. And this is Cain. And so we divide up the next two sections where we find these two cities. Chapter four, verse 17 through 24. the Descendants of Cain, a godless civilization. Chapter four, verse twenty five through chapter five, verse thirty two are going to be the descendants of Seth, the godly civilization. And so we're going to read through. And the way I'd like to do this is to is to read through these two sections and then to highlight Highlight certain parts of the text. Uh, What do we see in each city? What do we not see in each city? What is what is present and and what is absent in each of the cities that we're going to, to look at? And I think what Moses is doing. So remember this as we're reading through, I think what Moses is doing is he is going to highlight the boast of each city. In other words, as he describes the godless city and he describes the godly city, what he's going to to highlight are, are what each of those cities boast in. Okay, what would were, what were they brag about in that city? OK, what were they known for in that city? If you're putting together a booklet of what to expect if you're to visit this city, what can you expect to find in the city? What are the characteristics of that city? That's what that's what the filter that Moses is putting this through as he figures out what details to put in and what details to live out, leave out. And that gets us here in Genesis chapter four, verse 17. Let me read a bit and we'll talk about what we see and, and don't see in this city. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabel; He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nabah. Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy seven fold. So we read the words of Moses. What is the boast of this city? What can you expect to find in this city? What is it that you can find in this civilization? What is it that they boast in? We find great ingenuity. Right? This is a, a great city. This is a great society. This is a, a very productive, efficient people. Right? We find that there are the, the beginnings of things that we're still reaping benefits from today. Okay, it looks as though along the descendants of Cain was the the inventor of these tents and these movable habitations that people were to live in. It looks to be the invention of music or at least musical instruments are starting here. It is the very beginning of metal working. So this is a a lot of ingenuity that we find. And in that regard, this is a great city. This is a very self-sufficient city because if we read carefully, we see what's missing from this city. And what's missing from this city is God. God is missing from the city. There is no mention of him here. And so this is a godless society. This is a a godless culture, a culture that belongs to God still, but does not acknowledge God. And Cain was the one who who began this right by by severing his roots in God, by not turning back to God, by not repenting to God, by not going God's way, but by going his own way, by saying, no, thank you. I'm fine. I'll go my own way. And so God hands him over to his sin and drives him out. Scripture says even farther than he drove his parents, Adam and Eve. And now Cain has children and his children look just like him. And as Cain was godless, so, as you might expect, his children are godless. So what we find out here is that, make no mistake, godless people can build a city. Ingenuity can come from godless people. Godless people can be productive. Godless people have high intelligence. Godless people can be very efficient. And we see that here. While these are godless people, which means indifferent to God, which means, as we see in the text, that God is completely absent. It doesn't mean that they can't build a great city. But, but here's what we're finding out, is that in one sense, in one sense, a, a godly city is very full, but in another sense, a godless city is very empty. In one sense, a, a city without God can be very full, but is the emptiest of all cities. We see it first here in this godless city. We're not very different today. We're not very different today. We live in a godless society. We live in a godless culture. That doesn't mean that there aren't godly people in our society. It doesn't mean that there aren't godly people in our church, but many or most of the people in our city, meaning not just Roseville, not just Sacramento, not just California, the United States of America, our nation, our culture, the society we live in, the air we breathe is a godless day and age, a place and time where people are primarily speaking indifferent to the things of God. It does not mean that God is absent, but it means that in regards to our acknowledgement of God, God is absent and being taken further and further out of our minds and out of our society and out of our culture. So in many ways today, we live in, though, a great city, a very full city, but an empty city. By global standards, we live in a very full city. We live in a place that is full and rich and to the brim and has much to take pleasure in and has much to find security in and has peace. And all of these things we think that make us a very full city. But in another sense, the most important sense, when you go farther in and when you dig deeper, we live in a very empty place. We live in an empty place because where where there is godlessness, there is emptiness. Because while every need could be met outwardly, there is a greater need that all of us have inwardly. There's even a sense in which all of us know that there is something wrong in our soul, that there is something wrong with our soul before a good, great and holy God. It's why many of you were first drawn to church or drawn to the Bible or drawn to preaching or drawn to the gospel or drawn to teaching because you had an unrest that was in your soul. And some of you may even have the kind of testimony where some of you had circumstances drive you, but some of you didn't. For some of you, circumstances were just fine, as they are for many Americans. And outwardly, life was going pretty well. But there was an unrest within in your soul. And a godless society has nothing to offer someone who is empty inside. This is why we go to God's word every week. This is why we talk about Jesus so much. This is why we look at the gospel over and over and over again. Because inside we're withering. And we cannot be watered by anything else than God's truth and God's word. So while this was in many ways at first glance a very successful city. A city that was full. It is not the greatest city, it is an empty city. Derek Kidner said, Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. And then Augustine said in his book, Convections, Thou, Confessions, Thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in Thee. This is how God has made us. God has formed people for himself. God has made you to depend on him. God has made you to worship him. God has made you to desire him, to be content in him, to be satisfied in him, to be joyful in him. Every human being, God has made you that way. So everything else will bring you short. It'll bring you some satisfaction. It'll bring you some contentment. It'll bring you some happiness, but it will be fleeting and it just it won't go far enough. And so until then, like Augustine says, our hearts are restless like Cain. We are wanderers in a godless society until we find thee, until we find God. And so this is the first city. That is described here, this godless city, and there is a poster child, Lamech. Lamech is the poster child. He's on the billboard. He is good representation of what this civilization is, of what this godless society is. He is the quintessential descendant of Cain. And you're going to see when Moses describes the godly city, there's a poster child there too, in verse 21 through 24. But here we have Lamech. Listen again to what it says about him. Lamech said to his wives. This isn't starting well. He should not be talking to two women. God said in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh he didn't say for this reason man will leave his father mother and be united to some women and this is what lamech has done he's the very first polygamist in our bible He said i think two would be better than one he marries two women and then listen to what he says to them and in the hebrew this is poetic form this is poetry or song what is he singing a song about Ada and Zillah, hear my... I'm not going to sing this. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So five generations later, Lamech is worse than his forefather Cain. And this is what happens in a godless city. It does not get better apart from God. It gets worse. Do you you hear him bragging and boasting in his sinfulness? Okay, Cain, big brother, murdered his little brother. And now here is one who is murdering those younger, murdering those who are weaker and bragging about it. And what he's saying is, I am completely self-sufficient. I am completely independent. I don't need anybody's help. I am my own man. I can protect myself, provide for myself. And he compares himself to Cain. And what he says is, is if you mess with me. The consequence will be even worse for you. I will avenge my blood greater than God said he would avenge Cain's blood. Because remember, God said, Cain out and Cain said, oh, I'm worried people are going to hurt me. People are going to kill me. And God said, no, I'm going to protect you. If anybody sheds your blood, I will shed their blood sevenfold. And then what Lamech is saying. Is maybe Cain needed God to protect him. But I don't need anyone to protect me. Godlessness. Do you hear that? He is claiming independence from God. He's disinterested in God's protection. That was Cain's crutch, not mine. I do not need any help. I am completely self sufficient. This is what happens ultimately in the hearts and minds of people in a godless city. God gets removed from their mind and heart more and more and more and more. I don't need God. I don't need God. I don't need God. I am fine on my own. Legan Duncan said of this passage, In all the cultural advances and accomplishments which are cataloged in this part of the chapter, there is not one shred of redemptive hope. This is how a godless city goes. Thankfully, there's another city. He begins describing it in chapter 4, verse 25. Verse 25 and 26 are an introduction to what's to follow. The descendants of Seth, or a godly civilization. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said... God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you see the differences that are here between the godless city and the godly city. Do you see that even Eve recognizes this? God said in Genesis 3 there's going to be two offspring. The offspring of the God, offspring of the devil. Those who are godly and love God, those who are godless and reject God. Abel was godly. Cain was godless. But Cain murdered Abel. So what about the promise that God made? What about the promise of a rescuer that was going to come through the godly line, the line of Abel? Well, Seth is born. And what does Eve say about Seth? He is the one who has replaced Abel. God is fulfilling his promise still. He's not done. The rescuer will still come. My second born was murdered, but God has provided new offspring through which he will save and rescue us. And what begins to happen with Seth and his kids? They call upon the Lord. This family loves God. They worship God. They love God. We read on and we find this this pattern. But right, it almost it almost lulls you to sleep while you're reading it and, and hearing it read, right? Describes these fathers A and B and so A lived this many years, and then A had B. And then after A had B, A had other A's and B's. And lived this many years. So altogether, A lived this many years. And on and on and on is the pattern. Right? Listen, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. We should remember that sounds just like Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All human beings, godly city, godless city created in the image of God. Here is image bearers of God. Like God in many ways meant to reflect his goodness and greatness in this world. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So all of you are not only created in the image of God, you're also created in the image of your parents, Right. You have likeness with God and you have likeness with your mom and dad, right? There are things when you were a kid and a teenager, things about your mom and dad that maybe bothered you that you said, I will never be like that. And oh, look, you're just like that (laughs) because you're made in their likeness. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. Verse six. Remember, what do we see? What do we not see in this city? When Seth had lived one hundred and five years, he fathered Enosh Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65... I am having fun with that name. It's, it is good to say. It relaxes my tongue. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of... The author is changing the pattern to emphasize this. It's a literary technique in the Hebrew. We don't have things like that. We just highlight stuff and click a big B. <laughs> right? You put things in bold or all caps or underline them. We're kind of a dumb culture. We've got to figure out other ways to make things clear. But, but here they had other techniques that they would use. And one is you establish a pattern of writing. And then you deviate from the pattern. And it, it wakes you up. He's pointing out specific something specific about, about this descendant. Thus all the days of Enoch, verse 23, were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God. Took him. When Methuselah, who's the oldest man that ever lived, had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And it goes on through Noah. So, here you have this list of godly descendants. This is the godly city. Eight godly people that are highlighted. What do we see in this city? What is the What is the boast of this city? What is this city known for? Or maybe here's another way to ask the question. What is not missing from this city? And the answer is God. God is what is different in this city from the other city. We have here an account of a godly line from Seth to Noah. Notice also what we do not see. There is no mention of worldly accomplishments. There's no mention of worldly accomplishments. Surely that doesn't mean... That the line of Cain was the only one to accomplish anything and the descendants of Seth did not accomplish anything. But rather, what is Moses doing? He's highlighting okay, what each city boasts in, what each city is known for. And if you don't have God, the best you have is your worldly accomplishments. That's the best thing you have. And we do that. That is a characteristic of our godless society. What else do we have to put out? What else do we have to try to make ourselves seem valuable but to talk about what we do? That's why one of the first questions in a conversation is, what do you do for work? Because our identity is so wrapped up in what we do and and, and what it is that we accomplish. It's characteristic of a godless society. There is no mention of any worldly accomplishments here. I love that. But what is not missing... Among the descendants of Seth is God. Namely, what you see here is they have a proper view of man and a proper view of God. You see, in, 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 the, in the godless city, it's all about man. and It's all about what man does. And it's a very exalted view of man. And you hear here the opposite, right? There is no mention of man's accomplishments, but there is only mention of just the life of man. He lives and dies. He lives and dies. He lives and dies. He lives and dies. He lives. Oh, he dies. And the only interruption to that is God. God is the difference. Some would call this proper view of, of man and, and, and this proper view of God a, a seesaw theology. And the way it works is this, is that have you ever had to try to have both ends of a seesaw up high at the same time, that's very frustrating to try to do that. You cannot do that without breaking the seesaw. One side goes up, the other side goes down. So you you cannot have an exalted view of man and an exalted view of God at the same time. You You cannot see man as ultimate and God as ultimate at the same time. You cannot be all about man and all about God at the same time. It's like a seesaw. If we're going to exalt man and if we're going to have an infinitely high view of man, which will be characteristic of a godless society, which we have in our godless society you will correspondingly have a low demoted view of God. Likewise, what you see among God's people in a godly society is that if you have an exalted view of God, a right view of God, an appropriate view of God, you cannot have a high view of God without having a low view of man. Now, people hear that, including Christians, and say, I don't like that because when you, well, one is it's very contrary to humanism, right? And we live in a humanistic culture that says no man is the greatest and I'm the greatest and I'm independent and I am not poor and I am not weak and I am not needy and I am autonomous and on and on and on. And so that is offensive to our humanistic, where human is the highest, to our humanistic culture. And we think that that demotes the value of human beings, but it's actually the opposite. It is a godless society that in time sees human beings as not valuable. And it is a godly society that over the test of time sees people as very valuable. James Montgomery Boyce says it better than me. The ungodly object to this conclusion, of course. For they think that to lift God up is to debase man and remove his dignity. The case is actually the reverse. It is humanism that debases man and Christianity that elevates him. This is clear in this chapter. The culture of Cain runs on through godless generations and eventually produces Lamech, the epitome of the self-sufficient man. He can take care of himself. He does not need God. But what is his attitude toward other human beings? Parallel with his exaltation of himself is a lowering of his sense of the value of others, for he is ready to wipe them out for as small an offense as wounding himself. The line of Seth has a far lower view of mankind. It perceives his weakness. But at the same time, it also has compassion for those it knows to be made in the image of God and thus of inherent value in spite of the increasing wickedness. It is the godly who will value and give dignity to mankind. And it is the godless who will not. Do you not see in our culture that speaks so highly of valuing man also a hatred of life? When we detach ourselves from God and be consumed with ourselves, the end of that is not good for others. It is bad for others. We see it in Lamech and we see it today. It is those who are godly who should value human beings more than anyone else and should love and promote the protection of human beings more than anyone else because we see them as image bearers of God. And our concern is much deeper than the concern that others would have for people. And that our concern is, goes far beyond their material and physical and outward condition. And our concern is deeper. Our concern is for the souls of men and women. We deeply love people. We are deeply concerned for people. And we believe thus that hard words are important and necessary because we love people, not because we don't love people. So it is another trick. It is another trick of the devil to say, no, you must speak highly of an inherent value in human beings in order to really love and value them. That isn't true. Because when we speak of an inherent worth and value and love human beings, we end up just loving ourselves more than others. But if our love is for God. And we see each and every man, woman and child as his image bearer on this earth. We value them and we love them and they're worthy of our protection and provision, and prayers, and care, and nurturing. This is the godly society. And they also have a poster child. Enoch is on the billboard as you roll into town. Enoch. The pattern is broken, right? With Enoch. Enoch. We learn a couple things here about him, and then we learn a couple more things in two New Testament passages, which I'll read. But listen to what it says about this godly man. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. That's the first thing we see. Enoch walked with God. In your Bible, when it says that someone walks with God, it means there's an ongoing intimacy between them and God. Just like if you and I are to to take a walk with one another, there is a degree of closeness between us. There's a there's a relationship. So, too, those who are said to walk with God, as Noah will be said to walk with God or those who walk in close intimacy with God. It's not just lip service. It's real. It's legit. They love God. They trust him. They want to honor him. They want to please him. And Enoch was such a man that walked with God. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then here's the other thing we learn about him. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him, which sounds very strange when you first read it. Like What happened to him? Enoch walked with God and he was not. I can remember the first time I read that I thought God smoked. Him. If that's what that sounds like. He was not. Like, he did something wrong. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So we look to the New Testament, two verses and get more insight. Hebrews 11, five is one of the passages. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. This is what happened. Enoch was taken up. God took him. So that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him, which is kind of funny because that means people were looking for him. But they couldn't find him. Like, where's Enoch? I don't know. He was here a while ago. He hasn't posted anything on Facebook in a long time. I'm starting to get concerned. Just Nowhere. They couldn't find him. Where is that guy? I don't know if his, if his like, robe was left behind or what, but just there's nothing. But God just he just beamed him up, just zapped him up. He didn't die. Enoch and Elijah. Elijah taken up in this chariot. They're here and then they're gone and they don't come back. Everybody's like, when are they coming back? They're not coming back. You'll go to them. They're not going to come to you. They did not see death. Enoch was a godly man. Jude 14 and 15 also says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied. So he was a he prophesied. He was a preacher. He's a mouthpiece of God saying, This is what his message was. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That was his sermon. Probably not the most popular preacher. Probably not a lot of book deals for this guy. So we read he walked with God. He had close intimacy with God, a relationship with him. Like Second Corinthians five seven says of us, we walk by faith and not by sight. Okay, we're not walking with God literally, but we're walking with God metaphorically. We're in relationship with Him. There's intimacy between us. He goes before us. He's beside us. He's behind us. He's with us. Okay, we walk with God as well. He pleased God, Jude. Or Hebrews eleven five 5 says, He was a man who pleased God. So he walked with God. He was a godly man. God loved the way he lived his life. And it was a pleasing aroma to God. And then we hear from Jude 14 and 15 that he was a, a preacher. Remember, this is the poster child for the godly city. He was a preacher. And what did he what did he preach? What was his apparently he just had this one sermon. Over and over and over again. There could be something different this week. No, same thing. And a word a little different. You're still ungodly. What was his sermon? His sermon was About ungodly people doing ungodly things in ungodly ways. You hear how many times that word is in his sermon? Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Why? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the most common word in his sermon is ungodly. What are the most common words in today's preachers? So words like ungodly? Is it words like sin and wrath and judgment? Well, Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. God didn't want to be without him anymore. Took him to heaven, and he preached for righteousness, and he preached against ungodliness. So you are ungodly sinners doing ungodly things in ungodly ways. And you should stop and turn to God, which was an interesting thing that he said, right? Because these people knew God was coming back already. Genesis 315. They knew that God was coming back and he was coming back to rescue them and to deliver them. Right. God was going to send a rescuer. But this is news from Enoch. Who was prophesying that, yeah, God's coming back, but he's not just coming back to save. He's coming back to judge. Like, wait a minute. I thought we were just waiting for the rescuer, for the deliverer. What's all this news about? You mean we're not all going to be saved? Like, I thought the bus was going to be big enough for all of us. And that it didn't really matter because there's a seat for me and it's big <laughs> He says, "No, he's coming also to judge the ungodly. Not everyone's going to be on the bus. Coming to save and deliver, and to some his visit is going to be a joy, and for others his visit is going to be full of sorrow, because he's coming to Jude fourteen. He's coming to execute judgment. He's talking about the flood. God's coming." he's preaching to a godless city. He's not sending letters to this godless city. Remember, it's like our city today. Okay, the godless city and the godly city are, are intertwined, right? We live in one city. But within this city, there is a godly city and there is a godless city. There is a city who loves God and there is a city who does not love God. So in conclusion, what we have here. We have here from from Cain, really, and Abel or Seth is we have two cities, two humanities, two cultures, two civilizations, the godly and the godless. One author says it this way. To make the distinction clear, let me spell it out. The devil has his men and women and God has his men and women. The devil has his doctors God has his doctors. The devil has his convicts. God has his convicts who, by his grace, are lifted out of life, of crime. The devil has his lawyers. God has his lawyers. The devil has his housewives who gossip and flirt and sometimes commit adultery. God has his housewives who establish godly homes and raise their children in the knowledge and love of Jesus. The devil has his teachers and God has his teachers. The devil even has his preachers whose sin against knowledge will produce the greater damnation. God has his preachers who speak the truth. God wants us to see this contrast and pattern our lives after the lives of the godly. So there is a godless city among us and there is a godless city among us. You've heard us talk about this before when we talked about Cain and Abel, that there are godly people in a church and there are godless people in a church. There are people who on the outside. First impressions are good. External impressions are good. But within there's a heart that is not close to God. There's a heart that is far from God inside. There is not a heart that is after God, but is against God. Not that follows God, but runs from God, not but loves God and accepts God and trusts God and has faith in God, but rejects God. And so among us, in our communities and in our neighborhoods and in our churches, we have a godless city and we have a godly city. The question for us is, which city are we in? Friends, ask yourself the question. Do you live in the godless city or you do live in the godly city? Now, please, when you hear that question, are you godly or are you godless? Resist the temptation at that point to begin to think about things that you do and things you do not do. Because that is what we do as sinful human beings with a question like that. Are you godly or godless and your mind like my mind, your sinful mind like my sinful mind begins to think about what I do. And what I do not do, I start to think about the things that I do that I should not do and think about the things that I do not do that I should do. And we all picture in front of us when we try to figure out whether or not we're godly or godless, we have a scale that we put in front. and on one side of the scale is our good deeds and on the other side is our bad deeds. And we take all the things that we believe about ourselves and what we do and what people have said about us. And depending on what kind of a day we're having, that scale tips one way or the other. And when I say, are you godly or godless? The way our minds naturally work is, well, I'm godly if the good side is heavy and weighed down. But I'm godless if the evil and bad side is heavy and weighed down. Is that not how we think as human beings? And we think about our condition before God and our relationship to God and and what kind of a citizen we are and what kind of a family member we are. it's all based on naturally. This is how we go. What I do or do not do. And so the enemy plays a trick where when we hear godly and godless, we think that those are synonyms for good and bad. And that is not what godly and godless is. They are not synonyms for good and bad. And if we think that way. Then what happens when I say, are you godly or godless? There are, there are some of you who should not be comforted and you'll get comforted because you do a lot of good things and you think the scale is tipped and therefore you're godly. And you, I don't want you to have comfort. No comfort for you. That is not godliness. Godliness. And likewise, there are some of you because you see the bad things in your life who will be driven to despair because you think you are godless and unsaved. And I don't want you to think that. What I want us to all see, right, that we see over and over and over again, is that all of us, if we're looking at good and bad, the scale is tipped. It's like the good that you do and the good that you are is a feather on one side of the scale, Charles Spurgeon said. And the bad that you are and the bad that you do is like lead on the other side of that scale. So you're not going to find any comfort if when I ask the question, are you godly or godless? And you see how it goes for the godly and you see how it goes for the godless. If you think I'm asking, are you good or bad? The truth is, friends, you and I are all bad. It's like the scale on the bad side is not only weighted with lead. It's as if it is nailed to the earth. And no matter what you put in the other side, it's not going to tip. Nothing you can do is going to tip that scale. That is not what we're asking. Are you godly or godless? Are you a part of, of the godly city or the godless city? Friends, do you love God? Do you love God? Do you treasure God? Do you need God? Are you dependent on God? Do you have great affections for God? Do you long for God? Do you want to be with God? Do you hate anything and everything that gets between you and God? Do you obey God? Do you enjoy God? Do you proclaim God? These questions are better. And all under, do you love God? This is what we mean by loving and trusting God. Now, what you find is there are people who love God with all degrees of badness in their lives. Just at different levels. I've worked through this, haven't worked through this, going through this, going through that. Friends, we're not talking about good deeds and bad deeds. Do you love God? Now, this message is so important and and timely for us. Because we live in a society where the godless think they're godly. Part of it is because we just got those definitions we just went through mixed up. I'm godly. I'm good. I'm a descendant of Seth because I go to church. So we get get this confused. So we live in a society and we live in churches, especially out here in our suburbia, right, where where everybody's godly and, and everybody's good and, and everybody's fine. But the truth is, is that many are godless. And they do not pursue God and they do not walk with God. And they do not long to please God. They long to please others. And if pleasing God outwardly pleases others and builds their reputation, then that's what they're going to be about. That's very different. I'll close with words from Amos, because Amos might as well have lived in 21st century Roseville, And he spoke to a culture where everybody was at peace and they shouldn't have been at peace and everybody thought they were fine and he could see that they weren't fine. Everybody thought they were godly and he knew that many of them were godless and they felt a security and a safety that they shouldn't. And these were his words. Woe to you. You know something's good when a prophet starts with those three words. (laughs) Woe to you. That's the prophet's way of saying you're going to want to sit down. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, that right there sounds strange. Shouldn't we desire the day of the Lord? Don't we want God to come back? Christian, do you not look forward to the day when Jesus comes back? I do. Are we not a people who say, come quickly, Lord Jesus? And yet he's talking to a people where he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. You hear what Amos says to a godless city? He says when Jesus comes back, it is going to be a, a, a good day. It's going to be a great day for the godly. But for the godless, it's going to be darkness. saying here, here you all are is what these people that he's talking to who say they're godly but are not godly and, and maybe they do good things and they're in church but they, at heart they're indifferent to God they're godless they do not treasure God they do not love God and he talks to them and says, says why are you looking forward to Jesus coming back and why are you singing these worship songs and, and why are you living your life like this and why are you saying these kinds of words and why are you acting like everything's good between you and God and, and why do you say you want him to to come quickly he says here's here's what your life is is like and is going to be like you're so happy and sing about how you've escaped the clutches of the lion and there's oh i'm freed from satan and i'm freed from sin and i'm going to sing about it and laugh about it and talk about it he says but for you you have freed yourselves from satan but you haven't freed yourself from god You haven't actually run to God. You haven't actually looked to God. You haven't actually trusted him. So you've escaped the lion, but the bear is coming. And the bear is stronger than the lion. So you're going to escape this world, this lion, only to meet a bear that will put his hands on you. He says it's like the person, likewise, who goes into their house and they put their hand on the wall. Everything's okay. I'm fine. Just going to take a breather, just going to take a rest. I'm in a safe place. I'm in my own home. And you lean against the wall and you're bitten by a snake. He's saying you should not have peace. You should not lean against that wall. It is not good between you and God. You need to change. You need to turn. You need to stop. You need to start. And His words would be exactly the same for a city like we live in. Where there is a godly city and there is a godless city. But very few rightly know which city they're in. Because unfortunately, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And we're more content for people to be comfortable and secure in this life, only to be surprised at the end of their life. Then bring hard words now. Hard words like Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. May our hope be real. Real, really rooted in Jesus Christ. And his sacrifice and his work, not our own. And may our knowledge and understanding and belief in that gospel and in that work give us hearts of gratitude, so that we good the good that we do is at a heart of gratitude, not at a heart of fear that is trying to make God love us. Because the truth is, friends, while all of us are not lovely, we are loved, and we've got to be okay with that truth. You are not lovely, friend. Any more than I am lovely. But you know what? You are loved. You are loved as if you were the most lovely creature in all eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven has always helped us to not only talk about these things, but to believe these things. God, make it matter. Matter in our hearts right now. Awaken us to realities that might be painful for us, but true. Give us courage, God, to turn from our sin and turn to You. Give us courage to abandon things that that, that we think that we need for You. Give us courage, God, to, to pull out from underneath us that which has always been our foundation. Give us courage, God, to to realize that it's sand and it's not rock and to turn to You, to look to You, to hope in You. By Your grace, God, uh, change us from the inside out. Make us a people who who transcend the circumstances of this life and who are driven by a, a, a love for You and an affection for You. That makes us the most joyful of people, the most loving of people, for your glory, God, and for the good of others. We hope for this. We pray for this. In the great name of your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas truth.com.